Hello and welcome to High Country, Politics in the American West. My name is Sean Diller. Regular listeners might know me from Heartland Pod's Talking Politics every Monday. Go to heartlandpod.com for information on all our political podcasts and a link to support our work on Patreon. Sign up as an official pod head for just $5 per month to access all our premium podcast segments and political writing. To join the conversation on Twitter, find us at the Heartland Pod. All right, let's get into it. Smoke them if you got them. As we near the end of the Colorado legislature's session, several bills relating to the cannabis and marijuana business have become law or are awaiting the governor's signature. House Bill 1037, retail and medical marijuana at the same location, would allow a person to operate a licensed medical marijuana business and a licensed retail marijuana business at the same location if permitted by the local licensing authority. This law has been passed by the House and Senate and signed by the governor. House Bill 1135, marijuana transporter license transfer. Under the previous law, a marijuana transporter license could not be transferred with a change of ownership. This bill removes this prohibition and has been signed into law by the governor. House Bill 1152 would prohibit employer adverse action based on marijuana use. This bill would have prohibited an employer from taking adverse action against an employee, including an applicant for employment, who engages in the use of medical marijuana on the premises of the employer during working hours or retail or medical marijuana use off the premises during non-working hours. Employers would have been permitted to impose restrictions on employee use of medical or retail marijuana under specified circumstances, but that bill has been postponed indefinitely by the House Business Affairs and Labor Committee. If you ever see her broke, she's probably rocking a cast. Democratic Secretary of State Jenna Griswold had a record-breaking fundraising haul, raising about $875,000 during the first four months of the year, as she prepares to potentially take on a controversial challenger in the general election. Candidates for statewide office filed their first finance reports with the Secretary of State's office this week. Griswold's largest expenditures were nearly $1.8 million with the Denver-based Blue West Media for pre-election advertising buy. She currently has about $300,000 in cash on hand. Secretary of State Griswold's large war chest benefits from the lack of a primary opponent and can be focused on competing against a Republican opponent in the November general election. Controversial Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters, who's just been barred by a judge from overseeing her own county's elections this year, and has landed on the Republican Secretary of State primary ballot, reported raising about $157,000. Peters, one of the most high-profile and contentious Republicans in Colorado, reported a $1,300 expenditure to MyPillow Incorporated for airline airfare on April 18th. MyPillow is owned by Mike Lindell, a prominent election denier who assisted Peters after federal and state authorities began investigating her involvement in an election equipment security breach. Peters has since been indicted by a grand jury for crimes involving that breach. She's been accused of compromising secure information in misguided attempts to discover election fraud in Trump's bogus stop the steal lie. Peters is outraising her Republican opponent. In the governor's race, incumbent Democratic Governor Jared Polis reported about $5.4 million in contributions during the first four months of this year, $5.1 million of which he gave himself. So far, Governor Polis has given about $5.9 million of his own money for his re-election bid. Polis spent about $600,000 during the reporting period, including $50,000 to a Washington, D.C.-based firm for data acquisition. Polis, who does not have a primary opponent, has about $5 million in the bank. 
Heidi Ganahl, a University of Colorado regent seeking the Republican nomination to face Polis, reported a haul of about $377,000. She put $150,000 of her own money into the campaign this reporting period. Since the start of her campaign, she's contributed about $400,000 of her own cash. Democratic Attorney General Phil Weiser raised about $512,000 in the first four months of the year and has a healthy $1.6 million in cash on hand. His opponent, Republican John Kellner raised about $106,000 with $84,000 in the bank. So it seems like Democrats at the statewide level, Michael Bennett, United States Senate, Governor Polis at the top of the the statewide ticket at the governor's office, Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, Attorney General Phil Weiser, the state treasurer, Democrat Dave Young, who has a little bit less flash, but I think is just as safe as some of these other candidates. Colorado is looking really strong if you're a Democrat. Abortion will remain a right in Nevada. A draft opinion leaked to the press Monday shows that when it rules this summer on a Mississippi law limiting abortion, the United States Supreme Court will use the case to overrule Roe v. Wade, which protects abortion rights nationally. In Nevada, as the statute reads, a woman's right to get an abortion was submitted to and approved by referendum at the 1990 general election and therefore is not subject to legislative amendment or repeal. The statute approved by voters in 1990 that protects abortion rights also states that an abortion may be performed within 24 weeks after the commencement of the pregnancy. That, too, can't be changed by elected officials, but would have to be changed by the vote of the people through another ballot initiative. Over the last few months, Republican-controlled states have rushed to enact 15-week abortion bans, 6-week bans, and so-called trigger bans that would go into effect if Roe v. Wade is overturned and abortion is made completely illegal. At least 23 states now have laws on the books that would clamp down on abortion access or ban it completely should the United States Supreme Court overturn Roe v. Wade. Democrats in Congress have been trying to pass the Women's Health Protection Act, which would codify a right to abortion nationwide. Shortly after that legislation passed the House in September, Nevada United States Senator Catherine Cortez Masto noted that some Republican women in the Senate have supported women's reproductive freedom. Despite that fact, the Senate blocked the legislation with support from 45 Republicans and one Democrat, West Virginia's Joe Manchin. Nevada's Democratic members of Congress have condemned the court's overturning of Roe, calling for passage of the Women's Health Protection Act. Congresswoman Dina Titus said the Senate also must end the filibuster. This would require support from all 50 Senate Democrats. Manchin, along with Arizona Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema, have been steadfast in their opposition to ending the filibuster, however. This week, President Biden said, if the court does overturn Roe, it will fall on our nation's elected officials at all levels of government to protect a woman's right to obtain an abortion, and it will fall on voters to elect pro-choice officials this November. At the federal level, we need more pro-choice senators and a pro-choice majority in the House to adopt legislation that codifies the right to get an abortion, which I will work to pass and sign into law. Relevance or bust? The Colorado State Democratic Party has notified the Democratic National Committee that it intends to apply for early presidential primary status in two years, which would likely guarantee more and earlier candidate visits to Colorado. Colorado Democratic Party Chairwoman Morgan Carroll wrote in a May 5th letter to the DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee that presidential candidates would be better equipped to campaign in the rest of the states by listening to and learning from the different regions, people, and needs in Colorado. She said, we're the new model for American optimism and engagement in the political process, and also touted that Colorado has some of the most progressive election and voting laws in the nation. The DNC is soliciting applications from states to become early nomination or primary states in 2024 in an effort to move the spotlight away from Iowa and New Hampshire. 
Iowa's caucus process has been riddled with controversy, and some Democrats question whether either state is truly representative of the national Democratic electorate. The DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee voted last month to launch an application process to help it determine which states should go first in selecting Democrats' 2024 presidential nominee. Megan Burns, a Colorado Democratic Party spokeswoman, said our state represents the hope of America and is unique for its diversity. Colorado will have a lot of competition in seeking early primary status. According to the New York Times, the list of other states that have applied include Maryland, New Hampshire, New Jersey, Puerto Rico, Iowa, Illinois, Michigan, Minnesota, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Georgia, South Carolina, Texas, Nevada, and Washington. Will the Biden administration waffle on charter schools? President Joe Biden's administration has proposed new rules for a federal program that offers startup money to charter schools. The new rules reflect long-standing critiques of the charter sector. And the move has drawn support from politicians and organizations that are skeptical of charter schools, while charter advocates see this as a plot to limit their growth. Their pressure campaign against the rules has garnered support from conservative outlets and politicians, as well as Colorado's Democratic Governor Jared Polis and the Washington Post editorial board. It's a fight that's a long time coming, a culmination of more than a decade of shifting politics around charter schools, in which they've gone from a bipartisan darling to polarizing policy. At the same time, the backlash underscores the significant political capital that charter supporters maintain. The proposed regulations would apply to the Federal Charter Schools Program, created in 1995 to help charter schools open and grow. The Education Department has awarded billions of dollars in grants since then, and most charter schools that opened between 2006 and 2016 received charter school program dollars. The new rules wouldn't affect existing charters, but for proposed schools looking for federal help, the rules would, among other things, give priority to charter schools that collaborate with school districts. Schools that do things like coordinate transportation plans would receive priority for federal funds. Require a community impact analysis. This would delve into whether a prospective charter school has community support and is in response to unmet demand as evidenced by over-enrollment of existing public schools, among other things. That analysis would also have to provide evidence that the charter school would not exacerbate racial segregation in school. The proposed rules would also bar the use of some of the funding until the charter school has a facility and is approved to open and ban charter schools controlled by a for-profit company from receiving federal grants. How the rules would actually affect the growth of charter schools is unclear. President Biden has not sought to cut funding for the grants or end the program. In general, the regulations would only affect how applicants for a grant are ranked. But to charter school advocates, these new rules, particularly the first two, are seen as a threat. Luke Jackson, an education department spokesperson for the administration, declined to make anyone from the department available for an on-the-record interview with Chalkbeat Colorado. The education department spokesperson recommended the reporter speak to supporters of the proposal rather than the administration. Meanwhile, op-ed pages have been flooded with denunciations of the new rules. Stop Biden's and Democrats' war on charter schools read the headline of a Fox News article. The Washington Post editorial board called the rules flagrantly wrong-headed. A string of Republican elected officials have criticized the rules, and so have a few Democrats, including Colorado Governor Jared Polis, a charter school founder himself, and three Democratic U.S. senators. The Education Department has received more than 20,000 public comments in response to the proposed rules, many critical and others supportive. Representatives from the Poverty and Race Research Action Council, a D.C.-based advocacy group that supports the new rules, said the community impact analysis would address one of the most concerning features of urban charter schools in the United States, their potential to accelerate the concentration of the poorest and neediest students in the public schools that they draw from. The sentiments in the proposed rules reflect years of critiques about charter schools, that they exacerbate segregation, they hurt school district finances, and are sometimes run for profit. 
Those ideas have clearly influenced the Biden administration, unlike other presidential administrations, which have consistently backed charter schools. The regulations and the backlash highlight two key political realities. Charter schools have lost some of their support from Democrats, but they still retain significant political power, both through elite opinion and a now large constituency of charter school graduates, teachers, and parents. So what happens next? The department will have to synthesize and respond to the thousands of comments that have come in about the proposed rules. Then officials will decide whether to make changes or move forward with the rules as they are. I think this is a really sticky issue. I love us talking about it because I think it's something that Democratic and Republican voters and independent voters all have different opinions on and everyone's affected in different ways. I think there is absolutely a coordinated effort from big money groups on the right to destroy public schools and charter schools are part of the mechanism for that plan. And I hate that about charter schools. At the same time, the kids who go to charter schools don't know anything about that. So I wish the Democrats were more uniformly on message about the threat that the political movement behind charter schools represents while not being so afraid to acknowledge that there are tons and tons of Democratic voters in cities and suburbs that are now in that constituency of charter school graduates, teachers, and parents. My prediction is that the Biden administration will drop this whole thing entirely. I don't think that's the best thing to do. It seems like these are good rules, but we'll see what happens. Childcare crisis rolls on indefinitely. Brianne Moline is a childcare provider, and even though her Wild Wonders Early Learning Program is rated a four-star operation by the state of Montana, she competes with fast food restaurants for staff. She counts three employees and has expanded her business despite red tape, but Moline said she still turns away more than four families each week who need help with childcare in Missoula, and she herself qualifies for Medicaid. Moline said, we must build a better childcare system. Medical receptionist Chelsea Nichols helps people make appointments for work, and she sees herself as a connecting block between the community and the clinic where she works. She's also a parent who pays for childcare for her three-year-old, Sterling. Nichols said, if I didn't have childcare, I wouldn't be able to work. But the cost of childcare is substantial. An estimated one-third of the income of most Montanans and roughly twice her own rent goes to childcare, said Nichols. And spots are limited, with Montana meeting just half of the demand from parents, according to the most recent Kids Count report. On Monday, some 25 people gathered at the Missoula County Courthouse lawn for the Day Without Child Care strike, joining child care workers and supporters across the country to call for living wages for providers, affordable care for all families, and an equitable child care system built on racial justice. Child care workers demonstrated in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Missouri, West Virginia, Wisconsin, Ohio, and elsewhere. One advocate said that childcare industry workers have been rocked by even the suggestion of a strike because they have an ethic of care and don't want to make life harder for parents. They are the least secure workers, often earning $9 to $11 an hour, but they are also essential. If every childcare provider everywhere went on strike, the economy would be on its knees in a day. The Kids Count analysis estimated that inadequate childcare causes Montana businesses to lose $55 million and parents to miss out on $145 million in wages each year. And the problem is more pronounced in rural areas, with six counties lacking even one licensed childcare provider. This is one place where I'd like to see a lot of investment and new spending. There was lots of new spending for childcare in the Biden administration's Build Back Better plan. The advocates who were meeting this week and calling for reform are wanting that federal investment. But unfortunately, it looks like the administration's fears around inflation are going to keep them from doing anything on this. Arizona and New Mexico Democrats lead the push for new mining laws. 
U.S. House Natural Resources Chairman Raul Grijalva of Arizona and United States Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico have each sponsored bills that would set environmental and reclamation standards. Democrats in Congress are hoping to overhaul the 150-year-old law that governs mining the elements needed for battery manufacturing, as high gas prices and Russia's war in Ukraine underline the need to transition from oil and gas to renewable energy sources. The legislation also would require mining companies to clean up abandoned mines, lease the federal lands they operate on, and pay royalties for the revenue from public land. Chairman Grijalva said at a press conference, we are living in a completely different world than we were 150 years ago. Under the current law, miners are operating without any semblance of accountability. The transition to a clean energy future will inevitably involve mining. That's not the argument we have, but we cannot build a 21st century clean energy economy with a 19th century mining law. The legislation seeks to place environmental requirements and financial costs on miners, as well as require consultation with tribes. New mines would have to pay a 12.5% royalty rate for operations on federal lands. Existing mines would see an 8% royalty rate. One quarter of that royalty would go to the state where the mine is located, and the remainder would go into a new Hard Rock Mine Reclamation Fund, which was created under the $1.2 trillion infrastructure law President Joe Biden signed last year to clean up abandoned mining sites. Senator Heinrich said the new dedicated funding stream for abandoned mine cleanup was the most important part of the bill. Senator also said defunct mines can leach chemicals into nearby water and soil, and that the Gold King Mine wastewater spill in Colorado unleashed 3 million gallons of wastewater into the Animas River, with the mining contaminants creating a mustardy orange plume over hundreds of miles of waterways in Colorado and New Mexico. Lauren Pagel, the policy director for the environmental group Earthworks, said a transition to a fully renewable energy future was needed as soon as possible, and that cleaning up mining is essential to reach fully renewable energy. Private mining companies have extracted $300 billion of minerals from public lands without paying royalties and while sticking taxpayers with cleanup bills. If the federal government's going to allow private companies to extract resources and profit from public lands, the American taxpayer must be compensated and protected. Well, that's it for me. From Denver, I'm Sean Diller. Original reporting for the stories in today's show come from Denver Westward, Colorado Newsline, Arizona Mirror, Colorado Sun, Nevada Current, Chalkbeat Colorado, and The Daily Montana. Thank you for listening. See you next time.